I, I think I'm going to start out as I often do with the dictionary, just so you don't think I'm trying to uh, fake you out with some special definition of justice. So um, justice, uh, the quality of being fair and reasonable, that doesn't help, right? Dictionaries tend to go around in circles. Like it says, justice means just behavior. And if you look at just, anyway, being fair and reasonable. So I think, I think probably the, um, I explained in the guide to the Gita that I think the essence of justice is something to do with reciprocity. In other words, quid pro quo, that uh, giving people what they deserve and not uh, giving them less than they deserve. And uh, so if, if you consider justice, for example, one, one principle of justice, especially in our society, is that um, everyone is equal under the law. There's that famous uh, statue of the goddess of justice uh, holding a scale and blindfolded. And of course, the, the blindfolding of the goddess of justice indicates that there should be no consideration if someone is rich or poor, if someone has, you know, like they say, there's that old saying that a good lawyer knows the law. A great lawyer knows the judge. So, so that's the idea that it, you know, that's what it shouldn't be. It doesn't, that, um, that justice should be blind in the sense that uh, without considering extrinsic factors, factors which are not directly related to the case in hand. For example, the fact that the person being accused is my cousin, Freddie, or that uh, the person who's bringing this case against Freddie gave me a lot of money or et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you know, racism, sexism, all of these things. So the idea of justice is that there is a reasonable set of rules and um, there's a reasonable set of rules and uh, those rules are also applied fairly. So the people are rewarded or punished according to what they actually deserve. And of course, this is all, you know, the, you know there's a technical word in academic philosophy uh, I won't get started on academic philosophy, but there's the word axiology. Axiology, which means the, uh, <laughs> at least that's what they told me, uh, the study of the nature of value and valuation of the kinds of things that are valuable. So obviously, as, as soon as you use, let's say, English words like right and wrong, and if you're speaking in a moral sense, that, that, you know, that this is right and that's wrong, this is fair, that's unfair, that of course those are values because empirically speaking, there's no such thing as fair and unfair. Uh, that's something very important because some people about, well, let's say about a hundred years ago, some philosophers in Europe started having meetings in Vienna and they called themselves the Vienna Circle or in German, the Wienkreis. And, um, they came up with this really bad philosophy, which got some traction for some time that um, we can't accept anything as objectively true unless it can be empirically verified. You know, physicalism or materialism or methodological atheism or whatever you want to call it. So the first thing that, 
And it's first of all, why did they say something that's silly? And I'll explain why it's so silly. I mean, I'll explain logically why it's a very silly thing to say. Uh, at that time, you had this explosion of science. Science was progressing like every year, almost every day. If you consider this absolutely dramatic transformation of human life with the scientific revolution, although now that term has been problematized anyway, but still something like a scientific revolution in the 1600s. And then, and then people started applying it. There's like science and then there's applied science. So the application of all this new science was called the industrial revolution. And it absolutely transformed the way human beings live. I mean, for before that, before the industrial scientific revolutions, for thousands of years, people basically lived the same way in terms of, you know, how do you produce food? How do you farm? Or to give an example, there was this huge revolution, technological revolution in the late Middle Ages because in Europe, they started using big horses to plow instead of ox. So that was like an incredible technological revolution. So, so if you look at the way, say, people lived thousands of years ago, either in Greece or Rome or in India or Mesopotamia, and the way they lived, let's say, up to the Renaissance, uh, it really didn't change very much. And it's interesting because this gave a sense of, this gave a sense of timelessness. It gave a sense of timelessness because nothing ever really changed. I mean, things change in the sense, okay, now this guy's in charge or that lady's the queen. But in terms of the basic way human beings live, uh, it was just always the same. And in fact, up until science and industry really got into gear, uh, people did not look to the future. We're, you know, we, we grew up in an age in which we look to the future, like in the future, people will be able to do this and do that. And you see these sci-fi movies, which always miss the target because they, what is that? What is that 2000 Space Odyssey and the year 2000? Nope, nothing like that. Or if you look at old sci-fi movies, it is the year 2017. Human beings can now blah, 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 blah. But 2017 came and went and it, it didn't happen. But in any case, We've grown up in an age where we think that if you want bigger and better things, great things, okay, look to the future. But for thousands of years, people didn't do that, precisely because there, nothing indicated that the future would bring anything really better. And so people looked to the past. In, in uh, Europe, and they looked to the Garden of Eden. Because if you wanted a super advanced civilization, you look back to the Garden of Eden. And in India, for example, people would look back to the time of Krishna or the time of Lord Rama, what they call Rama Raja, the kingdom of Rama, when there was an ideal king who happened to be an avatar of God. So, so the, the, the shifting your vision, you know, seeking progress in the future, not in the past, was a huge innovation. It was a huge change in life. The reason I mention all this, we're, we're actually making our way inexorably back to Vienna, the Wien Christ, because so here you have people who, you know, kind of like the intelligentsia of Europe. And if you look at the philosophies they came up with, it's, uh, it's kind of scary because they weren't very intelligent. But so here you have all these intellectuals in Europe saying that 
uh, you have to look forward and it's science that's bringing a better life. It's science that's bringing us knowledge. It's science that steadily expands our knowledge. Whereas philosophers, you know, they kind of get the booby prize because if you look at, I mean, philosophy kind of something we can recognize today as academic philosophy, it really began, it got into high gear with Plato. You could say Socrates slash Plato. But um, so that's, you know, roughly two and a half thousand years ago. And so the philosopher said, okay, we've had, you know, 2,400 years, 2,400 years, and we still can't agree on anything. So they compared philosophy to science, and they thought science is really transforming the world. Philosophy is just going around in circles like a dog chasing his tail. Of course, they didn't bring in theology because they assumed that, you know, who would ever want to read theology? But anyway, so then they decided, therefore, look at the scoreboard. Clearly, it's kind of like, you know, final score. If it's a football game, it's like final score, science 92, philosophy nothing, or something like philosophy, you know, maybe 11. And so they decided that this is very interesting because in the old days, in ancient times, going back to, or even let's say medieval times when they, they had these very bright philosophers who were kind of hobbled because you had to philosophize within the Bible, within like Christian dogma, but they were very smart people. It's called scholasticism, that age of philosophy. But, I mean, they're very smart people. They were brilliant, but they, you know, they just, if you went a little bit outside that Christian perimeter, you could be burned alive at the stake, which, as you know, could ruin your whole day. So, so anyway, um, so therefore, since science was seen as the real way to get knowledge, the real way to get knowledge, back in the medieval times, when you had the scholastic philosophers, Christian philosophers, they said that theology is the queen of the sciences. Because if you believe that you have like genuine, even absolute or infallible spiritual knowledge, then you have all the ingredients you need for science. Because you, it, it's just like in geometry, given a triangle with two equal sides, well, that's gonna be, or, or let, let's say with two equal sides and two equal interior angles, that's going to be easy, right? And so if you believe that basic spiritual knowledge is given, then you have the foundation for a science because you can just test things against and build upon certain knowledge. So back in those days, they, they claimed that theology is the queen of the sciences. Kind of a nice feminine touch there in what was otherwise a very uh, chauvinistic age. So theology was the queen of the sciences. And um, and that included uh, things like biology or or astronomy. Those were all considered to be um, just different branches of philosophy. I mean, consider that if you get a PhD in astronomy, it's a PhD. It's a doctor of philosophy. If you get a PhD in biology, it's a doctor of biology degree. I'm sorry, it's, it, it's a doctor of philosophy. So, so a PhD in, in biology and astronomy and geology, they're all called doctor of philosophy because these are all just different branches because it was understood there's a supreme knowledge, which is theology. 
And then you just have different branches of it. In fact, they called what we call science, they called natural philosophy. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is that it all flipped because people got tired of a type of state religion where people just slaughter each other, torture each other, and people were just fed up. People were just fed up with this sort of crazy, barbaric, so-called you know, fanatical religion where you have to leave your brain at the door because someone's telling you what you can think and what you can't think, and people killing each other, torturing, massacring each other over little points. Of the soap. So people are, at least in, in, intelligent people, are just kind of fed up with all this. And in the meantime, science is booming. So then in, in, let's, let's go right back to 1920s, early 1920s, the Wienkreis, the Vienna Circle. And they're saying that all these sciences are not simply handmaidens of theology, which is the queen of the sciences, but actually philosophy is the handmaiden of the physical sciences. So they totally flipped it. They totally reversed it. And therefore, since philosophy on its own without the sciences never seems to get anywhere, so maybe all that philosophy can really do is just make sure that sciences, that scientists, um, you know, speak coherently, don't contradict themselves, make valid logical arguments, and so on and so forth. It's just, it's just a handmaiden. It's just a servant of the sciences, and therefore. Any philosophical claim, which cannot be empirically verified, is just meaningless. It's just gibberish. And since all statements, all statements about a soul or God cannot be empirically verified, uh, those statements are meaningless. They're, they're not just wrong. They're just, they're meaningless. This was kind of a, uh, not the most generous idea that's ever come out of philosophy. But to make a long story short, what happened is that 50 or 60 years later, let's say in the 1960s or 70s, academic atheist philosophers decided that that philosophy from Vienna, which was called logical positivism, or physicalism, or materialism, that was actually philosophically invalid. It was actually rejected. Academic philosophy rejected that notion that everything has to be empirically verified. And so why did they reject it? Uh, well, for several reasons. And, and of course, I'm actually inexorably making my way back to the topic. But um, so no, it's not, this is not an age-related memory loss where I forgot what the topic is. I'm actually trying to lay a uh, philosophical foundation for all these things. So the first problem with logical positivism, and of course, justice is a value, which according to logical positivism doesn't exist because it's a metaphysical idea. You can't empirically prove that people deserve justice. You can't empirically prove that we're equal in any sense of the word, because empirically we're not equal. I mean, we could have a race. Obviously, I would win. Hey, Lila Nanda, we could have a two-square game, right? That's, that's an old story about our two-square games. But anyway, 
I mean, we, you know, if we, you could take any group of human beings and test them in terms of their artistic ability, their mathematical ability, their athletic ability, their emotional IQ, and every conceivable test would show that people aren't equal. There is no conceivable empirical test you could give to a sufficient number of human beings that would show they're equal. So empirically, there is no such thing. But in any case, getting back to the point here that, so the first problem with the statement that we should not accept as objectively true anything that we can't empirically verify, the first problem with that is that that statement cannot be empirically verified. And so if someone makes a philosophical claim such that if it's true, it's not true, you know you are in trouble philosophically. Because the statement that everything has to be empirically verified, if it's true, it's not true. Which means that it's, you know, they were saying all these sort of these uh, materialistic bullies, they were saying that statements about the solar god are meaningless. It turns out what they were saying is meaningless, whereas statements about the soul and God are very meaningful for various reasons, which I'll explain. So one problem is that materialism, in the sense of you know, empiric demanding empirical proof, it's self-contradictory. If it's true, it's not true, and therefore it's just, it doesn't mean anything. Another problem is, that in, 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 the, in the, let's say, in the real life of the overwhelming majority of normal people, the most important things in our life cannot be empirically demonstrated. Like, let's say, for example, you actually believe the metaphysical claim, not physical, metaphysical claim, that somehow, which is right in the DOI, Declaration of Independence, that we're somehow created equal. What does that mean? We're obviously not, we don't have equal abilities. What does it mean that we're created? First of all, Jefferson, who's actually, you know, a crafty philosopher, he, um, he used the word, we hold these truths to be self-evident. So when saying it's self-evident, Jefferson or whoever, you know, with a little help from his friends, was actually using a, uh, a technical philosophical term that goes back to Aristotle. And the term is self-evident means that's basically how you escape an infinite regress of proofs. Because whatever you say, for example, I can say that right now I am in uh, the outskirts of Camarillo, California, which I'm sure will give great joy to all of you. So. Actually, it should because the high temperature here is just in the low to mid 70s today. So you should be thankful that someone has good weather in this country. Anyway, so I, I can make that simple claim that right now I am in this little academic valley, which is what it is, uh, just outside Camarillo, California, about halfway between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. And so, um, Someone could say, I don't believe it. I don't believe you're really there. 
and there's because they maybe just don't they think I'm a, I'm a, a compulsive liar or I'm not telling the truth. So I could you know bring in all kinds of people and say, well, no, all these people will verify that we're really in University Glen, Camarillo, California. They can say I don't believe them. So then you could even fly in, and you could say, well, I think this is just a very sophisticated virtual reality environment that I'm in right now. Or ultimately, someone could say, I don't believe there's a real physical world outside my mind. I'm a solipsist. Remember when you were a kid, your mother told you not to play with solipsists? Well, there's a reason for that. Because um, solipsist basically is someone who believes that the only certain knowledge you can ever have is the contents of your own mind, your own mental experiences. And you, and, and so, so what, what I mean to say is whatever anyone claims is true, like for example, you could all claim you're in Orlando as if I would believe that, right? So the point is that, um, so then if you're called upon to prove it, anything you muster as evidence, anything you bring forward as evidence, someone can just find some objection to it. They could problematize it. If you, if you develop a psychological disease where you obsessively problematize anything everyone, anyone, problematize everything anyone says, you actually could be on a tenure track to become a philosophy professor. But anyway, so, so the idea is that, um, so therefore Aristotle noticed this problem, even though, I mean, even though he's a dead white male, he actually did figure some things out. And so Aristotle, um, he saw there's this problem of being pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. So Aristotle being the father of modern logic, he said, well, how do you escape that infinite regress of proofs? And the answer he came up with, which is with the right answer, <laughs> if he would have been on a modern game show, he could have won prizes. But anyway, the answer he came up with was that um, you have to claim seriously claim, I mean, not just as a trick, that there's a fact which is self-evident. There's a fact which is self-evident. Once again, I just have to tell someone, uh, please don't call me right now. So um, something itself proves itself. And therefore, like to give a simple example. I mean, some of you heard all these things before. But um, sorry, just, you know, think I Love Lucy reruns. So, um, so let's say, for example, it's a sunny day. Like here in California, it's actually a sunny California day, unfortunately, because there's a drought. It would be much more auspicious if it was a rainy California day. But anyway, it's a sunny California day. So I, I can look outside and see the sun is shining. And, and let's say everyone, if you, if you ask a thousand people, you know, they'll all say, yeah, the sun is shining. So if someone claims, let's say, in the same relevant sense that I say the sun is shining, someone claims in the same area where I am, the sun is not shining. And so, you know, either that person is joking or mentally impaired or trying to play some trick on me or something's wrong. But if the sun is shining, everyone knows it. If someone goes around saying, actually, the sun is not shining, 
No one's going to take that seriously. Why? Because we all accept as self-evident. It, it proves itself. We look at the sky. Sky is blue. The sun is shining. And we're all satisfied that we know that to be true. And if someone denies it, we're not going to waste time with that person. Less. The point is that we all accept that as self-evidently true. We're not going to waste time trying to come up with some kind of scientific proof of it. So let's go to justice. Now, actually, let's, let's go back to justice after that uh, brief little preface. Um, almost everyone in the world, and, and I would say anyone who is um, sane and not morally or cognitively deficient, that um, some things are right and wrong. For example, to injure or kill an innocent person is simply wrong, and we know it's wrong. And, and so on and so forth. And we know that helping other people, acts of generosity, acts of compassion are morally good, and we know that's true. So uh, as, as the Scottish philosopher Hume pointed out, I mean, you can't prove that empirically. What would that even mean? Because from the point of view of just physical things, there's no such thing as a good or an evil. And yet we know they exist. Just like we know there's a sense in which we are all equal. Jefferson says that it's self-evident that we're all equal because we're equal in the eyes of our creator. So it's very interesting. If, if you look at Greco-Roman civilization, um, which in many ways was very advanced, I mean, very intellectually sophisticated, at least the educated people, they came up with democracy. So here's a simple historical question for you. What facilitated Athenians, you know, citizens of Athens, to engage in direct democracy, not a republic, but all the citizens of Athens would actually go up to what, you know, what literally it means the high city the uh, Acropolis, Acropolis, which means the high city. If you, if you know Athens, it's, that's what it is. We'll go up to the high city and they would, um, they would directly govern their city, direct democracy. How, why were they able to do that? Well, for one thing, because they had so many slaves at home. So if you have slaves to cook and clean and you know, take care of your kids, and plow your fields, you're going to have a lot of discretionary time. And so for all their advances in many ways to the Greeks or the Romans, actually, uh, they would have considered as ridiculous the idea that somehow we're all equal. For example, um, a, a slave owner had the power of life and death or sexual access over slaves. So where did equality come from? Where did this idea come from that somehow we're equal? It didn't come from secular humanists. It came from religion. It came from religion. It came from the Judeo-Christian tradition. I mean, Jesus, for example, quoted the Old Testament in saying, 
Love your neighbor as yourself, not your neighbor who has a good income, not your labor who's not a slave, not your neighbor who has political power, just your neighbor. In fact, that famous story of the Good Samaritan, to understand that story, you have to understand that Samaritans were kind of second-class citizens. The area sort of north of Jerusalem, uh, that county is, is Samaria, still called Samaria. And the Samarians, for various reasons, were considered to be second-class citizens in Israel, ancient Israel. And so something happened, and the only person who would help a needy person was a Samarian, this lower-class person. And therefore, Jesus pointed out, he's the, you know, he's the guy. The Good Samaritan. So, in, and of course, if you read Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna talks a lot about equality. And of course, the Gita, being more philosophically advanced, talks about equality of all living things, not just humans. Not just all humans are somehow equal spiritually, but all life, because all life comes from souls. So, the idea of justice as now, as we now understand it, that everyone is equal under the law, the goddess of justice, blindfolded, doesn't matter you know, how much money you have, doesn't matter your political connections, doesn't matter if you're my cousin Louis. You know, none of that matters. All that matters is that you're a, you know, you're a person and you get justice. So ideas of equality, ideas of justice, they come from not the physical science, the metaphysical science. They come from spiritual traditions. They come from, you look at anywhere in the world, they come from spiritual wisdom traditions, not from science. So that was another problem with logical positivism, that if you think that everything has to be empirically proved, first of all, you contradict yourself. So you're just, you know, what you're saying is actually not true if it's true. But secondly, you're basically destroying annihilating the whole foundation of civilization. The whole foundation of civilization is people being willing to enter into and comply with a social contract. An example I've given many times, let's say you're driving your car and you're trying to make the light, right? You know. Unfortunately, we all have that problem. We want to make the light. And so let's say you have a green light and you just plow through the intersection. Now, you are assuming that a whole group of people are honoring their social contract. For example, people going in the opposite direction theoretically have a red light. And you assume that they're going to stop. You hope that they're, they didn't drink and drive, that they're actually sober. You assume that the people, whoever gave that driver, those drivers, a driving license wasn't just bribed or wasn't negligent. You assume that the people who are in charge of keeping the electric traffic signals operating properly did their job that no one sabotaged the traffic lights. You assume that the people who hired the people who maintained the traffic lights were not just 
you know, hiring their, their friends or family, but actually hired qualified people. You assume that the people who gave the certificates or the degrees certifying that someone was qualified to work as a civil engineer to keep the traffic lights going, that whoever certified that person was doing their job properly. You assume the person who hired the person who sort of, so what I mean to say is every time you just drive through a green light, you are practically trusting that hundreds if not thousands of people honored their social contract. And you can give, I mean, not to speak of hospitals because, you know, we, there are stories of nurses or other people actually murdering, you know, significant numbers of people. So therefore, civilization is based not just on science, but it's based on your ability to trust that your fellow citizens will do the right thing. And they will do the right thing because they know it is the right thing. But from the empirical point of view, there's no such thing as the right thing. From the empirical point of view, the word, the morally right thing to do, that's a meaningless statement. It doesn't mean anything because it's a statement about metaphysical truth and not physical truth. So I could go on, but the point I'm trying to make here is that uh, if we wanna talk about justice and if we think that's a meaningful thing to talk about, for example, if I say, can we, the topic of today's lecture is going to be the uh, my favorite unicorns because you know of all the unicorns that I've personally had as pets, three or four of them are outstanding. So, I mean, apparently that would be a problematic statement. So therefore, I mean, but it's clear if you just look at the big picture. Uh, no one is really a physicalist. They cheat. They're actually hypocrites. Because even the physicalists, the people who say nothing is real except empirical stuff, which is, by the way, from the point of view of academic philosophy is like way behind the times. They still believe, they still tell their children that this is right and that's wrong. And they still get shocked when someone, let's say, commits a, a, a mass murder or something. So, um, now, according to the point of view of evolutionary biologists, who are some of the most brilliant fools on earth, the idea is that the only, re the only reason you think that it's morally wrong to go, let's say, and, and, and murder a bunch of innocent people, the only reason we think that's wrong is because the blind physical forces of nature through evolution, neurologically programmed us to believe a fairy tale that some actions are actually wrong or some actions are right. Or for example, the idea we have, if a mother feels that I should protect my child, I should love and care for my child, uh, there's no such thing as love. There's no such thing as, there's no, a mother has no moral obligation to protect and love and care for her child. It's just, you know, blind evolution made us believe in a fairy tale. So anyone that's a good mother, a good father, it's just someone that got duped by blind 
blindly programmed neurology. Those are the logical consequences. So what I mean to say is that no one really believes that garbage. And so it's, you know, materialism is actually, it's terrible philosophy and it always has been. And uh, it, it's just deployed to, it's a power struggle because now that atheists and agnostics have taken over Western universities for the, by and large, it, it's just they want to keep their power. And uh, but anyway, so getting back to justice, now that I, I hope I've demonstrated there really is such a thing as justice, and we have, I mean, we know there is, and that knowledge we have is properly self-evident. It's, uh, to use sort of technical academic language, it's properly basic in the sense that to, to say that something is self-evident means it's a sort of epistemic foundation. You can build a knowledge system on that foundation. So, um, so what is fair and what is unfair? Krishna talks about that. Krishna stresses in the Bhagavad Gita that a wise person sees everyone equally. Everyone deserves your moral consideration. Even if you have to pull some weeds out of your garden because you have to pull some weeds out of your garden. Oh, let's say armies of ants are taking over your kitchen. I mean, literally they're taking it over and it's either you or the ants. And so you have to take some measures to stop the ants from, you know, the, in the most peaceful way possible. Um, we never forget that those are souls. We never forget that those are souls. And, and just to give an example of, of, of a Vedic notion of what is justice and what is fair. When I was doing my doctoral dissertation, dissertation at Harvard, at Harvard, God, they are so, you know, with all these modern like moral issues and everything, they just, all they do is protect their brand. You know, it's not a truly open-minded school as Lila Nanda knows, like the University of Texas. That, that's a joke. Anyway, so because all these so-called prestigious universities like on hot item issues, basically just protect their brand. They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to be canceled. And so they just take very safe, sort of unthinking, mindless positions. But apart from that, so I, I read this ancient Sanskrit book, just you know, doing research for my dissertation, and um, it talked about what you have to do if you're going to build a temple, like a Krishna temple. And in those days, uh, didn't have tractors. This is you know over a thousand years ago, or maybe maybe a couple of thousand years ago. I won't get into the you know dating issues of Quran of that kind of literature, but so they um, so obviously before you build a building, you have to you have to level the land. You, you know, you generally don't build buildings on you know land that's like that. So so you know as far as possible, you you, you have a level building site, and so in those days that was done with a plow. So because you're building a temple, you're you're constructing a, a, a temple for God. Uh, everything has to be done in, in, in the best way possible. So you use a new plow. You don't want to use the same plow that was used for ordinary mundane things. So you want, you want a new plow. So plows are made out of wood. So to get a new plow, you have to cut a tree down. The problem is that when you cut a tree down, um, you are basically you know, killing one innocent creature, the tree, 
And, but you are disrupting, seriously disrupting an entire community. Because every tree is actually an extensive community in terms of birds, in terms of insects, in terms of you know, other animals that take shelter from the sun or the rain, animals that feed on the leaves or the fruits. Or, so, so actually a tree under normal circumstances where they're not like killing everything with you know, pesticides and everything, but under normal circumstances, a tree is the center of an extensive community. And so when you cut a tree down, you are seriously harming or disrupting an entire community every time you cut a tree down. And so in this text, there was this very keen awareness of this. And therefore you don't just go in and cut a tree down. What you have to do is first of all, you have to acknowledge the harm you're causing you have to very sincerely uh, pray to God to bless those creatures who are being, uh, to use the modern lingo, negatively impacted. You have to, and I mean, whether it's the insects, whether it's the birds, whether it's the animals, there's all kinds of living things who are just as much souls as you are who are being impacted by this. And you have, to, you have to care about them. And you have to pray for them. You have to apologize to them. And only after you've done all that very sincerely, then are you allowed to cut a tree down and build and, and fashion a plow to, to prepare a building site. Now, if you think about it, Inevitably, in our interaction with nature, we kill things. We kill things when we breathe, when we drink water. So, in fact, the Bhagavatam says, jivo jivasya jivanam, which means life is living. Life is the living of life. I mean, you can't, you can't eat plastic. All of us eat organic matter. All of us eat organic uh, matter. And... Uh, in the sense of, you know, even the food, the food, they say figs, that that every time a fig grows it, um, what is it, a bee or something or a fly or something gets sucked into the fig or something. I mean, we, I mean, nature is beautiful, but nature is also very violent. And, and so just by the fact that we are in nature and interacting with nature means that we will inevitably be causing some apparent harm to many other creatures. It's just, for example, right now I am in an apartment, but in order to build this apartment, imagine all the environmental impacts. In securing the building materials and claiming the land and everything. And so, but if you have these higher principles, these Krishna conscious principles, then obviously, you know, if you have to go through all that to cut a tree down, even in service of God, you can't just go into a forest and, and clear cut it, just wipe out the forest because you need paper for pornography. So it, it, it really sets limits on this. And I remember also when I was doing my undergraduate work at UCLA, I took an anthropology class in which we uh, 
learned about the, um, I don't even call it, the simple peoples of South America, like the, uh, especially the Amazon region. And um, the indigenous people, and because they had the same idea. It was like a universal understanding on earth that when they go into the forest to cut a tree down, to make a canoe, for example, to go on the river system, they have to get permission from the goddess of the forest. So if someone doesn't even know that there is a goddess in the forest, they're really kind of mindless. I mean, if someone doesn't even know that nature is enchanted. There was a book that came out, a very influential book, I think 70s or 80s, it was called the, something like, the title was roughly The Disenchanting of Nature. Everyone, whether it was in Europe, whether it was in the Far East, whether it was the indigenous peoples of North or South America, everyone understood that nature is under the governance of souls that are greater than us, more powerful than us, and that we have to work according to their rules. So this that's another problem when you secularize everything, when you say that you know metaphysical things aren't true, there are no rules. You can just basically do whatever you want. And if you say, okay, I'm a secular humanist, or I'm a uh, you know a, a um, or an atheist humanist. I know God in my system, but I, I believe in human well-being, or I'm an environmentalist, ultimately, you don't really have a foundation. You're just, and you're even contradicting yourself, because why should I, for, I mean, to, to give the opposite, we're talking about justice, to give the opposite philosophy, there's this really interesting dialogue with uh, where Socrates I mean, it's written by Plato. Socrates is speaking to a gentleman named Callicles. Callicles was a uh, skeptic, materialist. And so Callicles put forward the argument that um, when you talk about justice, when you talk about equality, it's just a scam. Because the real fact is, and this is sort of like Nietzschean, if you know, I mean, Nietzsche was crazy long before he was officially diagnosed that way. But anyway, you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche has his, his Ubermensch or, you know, Superman, Ubermensch, like the Overman or something. And um, he, you know, he has this idea of the will to power. In fact, Nietzsche really dumps on Christianity he really mocks it, and, and he basically, anything he didn't like, he just insulted in kind of vulgar language. He was, I mean, you wouldn't really call him a gentleman. But anyway, Nietzsche, he railed against, he couldn't stand Christianity because he said that it, it just teaches a slave mentality. It teaches a slave mentality where you obey God and you serve the poor and you help people in need. And so this whole ethic where the people who are most in need deserve our most deserve most attention, we should serve those people. Nietzsche was disgusted with this. He was disgusted. He said, this is a slave mentality. And then you go back to Callicles, and, he, and, and Callicles said that the, you know, the ubermensch, the powerful person, should rightfully become a tyrant. 
That's the word they used back then, you know, tyrant, the old Greek word. In other words, if someone, and shouldn't listen to all this nonsense, false philosophy of the weak people, because what happens, he said, is that the weak people, seeing that some people are really strong and are going to rule over them and be tyrants, they join together to resist the strong man. And, um, and he said, but actually the powerful man should defeat them and just take what he wants. And this whole idea that we're equal is just cheating. It's just, that's what weak people say. Weak people say we're equal so that uh, to, to, to stop the strong person from taking what he really deserves to take, which is basically anything he has the power to take. We're a strong woman. So, so what are you gonna say to Calicles? If, if, you're, if you're a materialist, basically you have nothing to say to Calicles. Because you can say, well, that's not fair. And Calicles will just say, what does that mean? There's nothing but matter. There's nothing but physical objects and physical laws that govern those objects. The laws of causality, space and time. That's all there is. We live in a completely physical universe. And if you think there's something else like justice or equality, that's just your imagination. And since nothing is real except those things that are empirically verified, the conclusion is there is no such, there's no real thing, which is justice. There's no real thing, which is equality. And so what are you gonna to say to that person? If you're a materialist, you got nothing to say. And so that's the argument of Callicles. In a sense, that's the argument of Nietzsche. That if you have the power, if you can enslave other people, go for it, dude. You know, if, if, if you could enslave other people, go for it. And don't listen to all their nonsense fairy tales about justice and equality, which empirically don't mean anything, which scientifically don't mean anything. So is that the kind of world you want to live in? I mean, I don't. So that's another reason I think that this materialism is just kind of sinking fast as a philosophy, even among scientists, because it's, it's so stupid. And, and we know that some things are right. We know some things are wrong. Empirically, you can't even prove there's a real world outside your mind. Because for example, I mean, the example I always give, let's say you hold up a pen. Oops, oops, I got my, by the way, behind me is a literary holy place. It's the house of Jane Austen. You see that? <laughs> my my literary guru. So see my hand. Okay. Okay. Here's a pen, a writing. Oops. I'm a magician. I should go on. America's got talent with this. Okay. Now I can say that I can prove there's a real physical world because that's a real pen, but that's circular reasoning. Circular reasoning means you give arguments for a conclusion but the arguments are only true if the conclusion is true. So the arguments rest on the conclusion, the conclusion rests on the argument. So it's just going around in circles because this is a real pen only if there's a real material world and there's a real material world only if this is a real pen. 
So, um, so even if you want to do science, and, and obviously you can't be a, real, a sincere scientist if you don't believe there's a real physical world out there, but you cannot empirically prove there's a real world out there. You cannot empirically prove it because any empirical proof is valid only if there's a real physical world out there and you're not just a brain in a bottle being manipulated to think those things. So therefore, um, uh, whether you wanna be a physical scientist, anything you wanna be, if you buy into, I hate those capitalist analogies like buy into bottom line, I actually noticed years ago that people started using all these financial metaphors. Anyway, so um, so if you, let's say you want to, let's say you believe in spiritual knowledge or you believe in empirical knowledge or you believe in poetry, you know, that somehow, I mean, if you look, if you look at another form of knowledge, which was emphasized because in, in, in the 1700s, you know, the age of enlightenment, the enlightenment, where they just kind of went crazy. They were trying to tear down the, all the, you know, corrupt church. They're trying to tear everything down, French Revolution, and everything has to be science and everything has to be logical and reason. And uh, actually, if you know uh, Charles Dickens, he has a novel called Hard Times, in which the opening paragraph, he's kind of mocking that idea that everything has to be. Oh, I got a quick. So anyway, um, so as a reaction to this heavy sort of uncompromising and sort of really counterintuitive materialism, there was, a, there was an intellectual revolution in Europe, which I'm sure you've heard of. And that intellectual revolution in the late 1700s and the 1800s was called romanticism. It was called romanticism, where we gotta get back to nature. I mean, that was sort of the original back to nature because before the Industrial Revolution, there's no question going back to nature because there was nowhere else to live on Earth. I mean, if you were on Earth, you were in nature. Both the Industrial Revolution and all these hellish cities, there was this back to nature movement. And, the, and it had a whole epistemological side to it in the sense that, for example, if you truly fall in love, when you really love someone, you understand things that you could never understand otherwise that love, deep love, reveals certain truths about the universe, about yourself, about the other person that you could never understand empirically, it's, it's absurd. When you go out in nature and you see a beautiful scene in nature, you grasp a beauty, not only a beauty, but a truth, that the, the, in that beauty, there's truth, there's something profoundly true about the beauties of nature which no amount of botany or, you know, or biology could ever reveal to you what, what you experience when you experience natural beauty. And so anyway, that's a whole topic, you know, the romantic age. And it had, it had certain downsides. Naturally, they went too far because what else do ever people ever do except go too far? So many what I guess the point I'm getting at is there are many modes, there are many ways of knowing. There's the empirical, there's the spiritual, there's the aesthetic, there's the mathematical. In fact, there's even been a, re, there's, a there's been a revolt of theoretical of philosophers of mathematics 
where they don't accept that they're part of the empirical world. Like you say, you say the number two or the number three, and you don't mean two apples or three pineapples, you just mean two as an idea. And this is very platonic, do you know Plato? Like the pure idea of two-ness. And they're saying it's not empirical because it doesn't require that you have two of any physical object, just two. And so that's a whole other topic, you know, math as a real thing. Numbers are somehow real things created by God. Or, for example, in, in order to relax, because, you know, being a leader in a religious institution is a uh, sort of the fast track to uh, all kinds of burnout. So one thing I do among my many strategies is that I play classical music, especially Baroque. I'm a big fan. My favorite is Handel, George Friedrich Handel, who, by the way, Beethoven said was the greatest composer. So if you think Beethoven knew anything about music, he said the greatest composer was Handel. But anyway, so I play music, you know, keyboard. And it's a language. It is so much a language. And, and when you really get into the music, and I find, especially when I'm playing it, because I, you know, because you really, you see everything. You see every little detail of what the composer's saying. And um, it's a language. It's a nonverbal language. But all kinds of incredible beauty is revealed and expression and emotion and logic. I mean, to understand Baroque music, for example, you have to understand that it, it's being heavily influenced by Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, especially the mature Baroque, Handel, Bach, Vivaldi, you know, the great mature Baroque people. Jaisit is also on my Baroque team. I converted her. So, um, the reason I mention this is because it's very much, you, you see the influence of Newton, because even when you see like, I mean, this is very technical, I won't dwell on this, but Handel likes to do sort of ascending and descending triplets, where you have like a tonic, like the main note, and then, and then you know, the third above that. And it, it sounds like it's very much Newtonian. In, in the sense it has, it has almost like this mathematical logic to it. And of course, the, the mathematical genius that everyone agrees on is Bach. Bach was a mathematical genius in addition to a, and, and this idea of music and math and logic and music, it goes back two and a half thousand years to Pythagoras. Because like, for example, the word cosmos coming from the Greeks, like cosmic cosmos, here are two words that you may not have noticed coming from the same root, cosmos and cosmetics. Because the Greek word cosmos or cosmic indicated their conviction that the universe is beautiful. It's a work of art from divine creators. And that's why that's the connection with cosmetic. But what I mean to say is, that there are many languages, there are many ways. And so when I play this Baroque music, which is the last great, well, it's the greatest God conscious period of music. When you start to get into Haydn, Mozart, and then Beethoven and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, they still believe in God. They're not atheists, but they're really entertainers. They're really trying to, they're becoming very much humanistic. They want to like uh, like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony of the Ode to Joy. It's not the Ode to God, it's the Ode to Human Joy. 
And so again, these are not atheists. These are believers. But life is becoming more and more and more secular, more and more humanistic. And, uh, and you can hear it. So if you listen to Baroque music, if you listen to you know, early classical, classical, romantic music, they're describing to you their worldview. They're describing to you their cosmology. And so the reason I mention this is that there are many ways, there are many languages, many ways to get knowledge through music, through math, through art, through nature itself, through science. And ultimately, and that's why Krishna says that this is jnananam jnanamutamam. Now I'm really going to get into the religious uh, moment of my talk. And that is, Krishna says in the Gita that of all, literally, of all knowledges, uh, this is the highest knowledge. Krishna never says this is the only knowledge. He talks about the many forms of knowledge. And he says, but this is the highest. And so ultimately spiritual knowledge in Krishna consciousness is not the only knowledge. It's the culmination of a pyramid of knowledge systems. And in Krishna consciousness, you actually engage music. For example, music can, just music can teach spiritual truth. And, and uh, you know, mathematics, the study of nature, microbiology. And, and that's really what the Gita is teaching and what the Bhagavatam is teaching, that there's all these different dimensions of reality. There's the moral dimension. And yet all these different dimensions ultimately emanate from an absolute truth, who is Krishna. And therefore, all these different forms of knowledge, including justice, jurisprudence, is another branch of knowledge. And all these different branches of knowledge emanate from and culminate in Krishna. And that's really what Krishna is teaching in the Bhagavad Gita. Anyway, uh, you know, there's lots to say on this topic, but maybe I'll, I'll stop here. And um, are there any questions? Let me unmute here. You say, thank you so much, Srila Acharya for the class. It was very enlightening. Um, as a devotee and seeking spiritual knowledge, I do understand based on my experience, empirical experience living in this materialistic world, that sometimes life is not as I expect and that I do not see the justice or can ex expect this justice from the world, as you say, is uh, not empirical and sometimes uh, the laws are, are not obeying. But as a devotee, understanding that the spiritual law, and maybe this is what I believe, that if I do my best for Krishna, and based on my love and devotion to do the right thing, whether the circumstances affecting me or the environment or whatever thing is in my surrounding, if I do the right thing, this spiritual uh, justice will come, perhaps not in this life, but it will ultimately come. So I mean, at least that's the way that I'm thinking, that Krishna is protecting me and that uh, he will seek for me to 
to get that justice or just to protect me in the circumstances? What is your opinion on that? Muy bien dicho. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I said very well said. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you expressed it very well. That's exactly what it is. That um, as we know, uh, anyway, I won't beat a dead horse and criticize modern politicians. I think you know, anyone that has an IQ over 11 knows the quality of our so-called leaders. So, um, but yeah, ultimately, ultimately, there's a high. There are two levels of justice. On the one hand, uh, and, and these two levels of life uh, are described in Sanskrit as vyavaharika uh, and paramarthika. Vyavahara in Sanskrit means, in this context, um, social intercourse. You know getting a driver's license, paying your taxes, trying to get a job, voting, uh, you know, raising a family, just whatever. Just the things you do in this world because they're, you know, you have their duties. And so we have to conform, you know, we have to follow the law, pay our taxes. It's like, imagine if you were, let's say, applying for, to get into a college and it said date of birth and you wrote in, you, you just wrote in from the Gita and the Jayate Mriyate Vakadash, the soul is never born or dies, never dies. I mean, you probably won't be admitted. So I remember, you know, we were very young and immature. You know, in the early days of the movement, we were, you know, like we'd be out chanting on the street or something, and some reporter would come up and say, you know, where are you guys from? And we'd say, from the spiritual world, from Krishna Loka. Yeah, yeah, I know that's, that's your. That's your belief of where you and you know we were kind of uh, sort of very pious and very clueless. So there is there is you know a dimension which is biyabaharika. You just have to follow the rules, obey the law, seek justice for yourself and others. And then there's paramartika from the word paramarta. Paramarta means the highest meaning, the ultimate meaning of everything. What does it ultimately mean? And so there's a justice on that level too. Too. So it may not always coincide exactly. In other words, in, in fact, this is a, this led to a whole topic, a very ancient topic in philosophy or theology, which is called theodicy, like the justice of God. Does, if there is a God, is God just and does God promote justice? You find this in the Old Testament, of course, in the story of Job, in which they're directly talking about that. So that's much more of a, I mean, that problem, or it's also called the problem of evil. If there's a God, you know, why is the world such an absurd place? And why is the world such an unfair place? And this is especially a problem, especially a problem for the Abrahamic religions that, that believe, at least not all of them, but many of them believe, most of them believe that uh, this is our first life. You know, we were just created from nothing. And uh, which is not the case. We've always existed. And so if you believe this is our first life, then it, it really becomes philosophically impossible. It's just, there's no way you can fix it. There's no way you can show that there's a God, triple O God, 
omniscient, you know, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, a God who knows everything is all powerful and all good. And yet, and this is our first life. It's just philosophically, it's a total dead end. You know, the, you know, the standard argument is that God knows everything. He knows that this world is so crazy and unfair. If God is all good, omnibenevolent, then he cares about this. He wants to fix it. If God is all powerful, he can fix it because he's all powerful. So if, if, if a God knows everything, wishes everyone the good, benevolent, and has the power to fix it, but we see the world is not fixed, and therefore there cannot be a God who knows everything is all good and, uh, and all powerful. Of course, ultimately, this is a bad argument. Because whenever you're discussing moral issues, like what a person should do, whether it's souls or God or anyone, you know, if you're talking about morality, like what should a person do? You know, what would a good person do, whether it's God or someone else? But there may be competing uh, moral interests, as we see in the Bhagavatam, the case of Ashwatthama and Bhima and Krishna and Draupadi. But so actually, there, there's a um, there's a Christian philosopher who I think is retired now, uh, no longer active, named Alvin Plantiga. He taught for many many years at in the philosophy department of I think of the University of Notre Dame, which is of course a top tier school. And um, he gave the argument that it is reasonable that God permits one evil to prevent a greater evil. And so if God, by permitting people to do bad things, the greater evil he's preventing is that we have no free will, then no one could actually even be a person. But now... Interestingly, although he got a lot of he got a lot of mileage with this argument among atheist philosophers, somehow they kind of went for it, at least to the extent that it shows that we're not logically required to think that there can't be a God these three qualities. Now the problem is because Plantica is coming from a Christian tradition in which this is our first life. Uh, and, and, and if we then he had to force his whole equation, he had to force his analysis into one life. But, um, you know, uh, St. Anselm was actually English. St. Anselm gave in the late Middle Ages the ontological proof for God's existence. He said that God is that person than whom no greater being can be conceived. But anyway, without going into all the technical issues there, but so we can easily conceive of a greater God than the one that Plantiga is having to justify. Namely, a God who, number one, gives us as many lives as we need to get it done. No social promotions. In other words, you have to actually earn it but if God is infinitely merciful, how could an infinitely merciful being not give you eternal chances? It's just, I mean, that right there is, so the idea of one life is, I think, total absurdity. And then if there are multiple lives, which any, any, any normal father, mother, Kid doesn't get 
right, you give them another chance. So then God cannot, God doesn't have to allow the evil of someone harming an innocent person in order to preserve our free will, because that person, you know, in order to have free will has to be able to harm an innocent person. No need for that. Because if you understand karma, then, like they say in Spanish, se junta el hambre con la gana de comer. Then you can, uh, then if God within the heart of a soul knows that soul is premeditating an evil act, God brings that person together with someone who has some nasty karma coming. And so therefore in the universe, no one actually ultimately harms an innocent person. But because Plantica, who was a very prominent, you know, skillful philosopher, but just sort of stuck with that, you know, one life philosophy, um, we can say that God is preventing, is, is preserving our free will, but he can do so without allowing harm to innocent people. And so, um, so I, I, think, I think that sort of answers your question. That, and, and also there's these two levels, as you said, there's human justice and there's ultimate justice. Hare Krishna, Srila Dave. Can you hear uh, me? Yeah, where are you? In the corner. Oh, why don't you come forward so I can... Uh... Yeah, let, let, let's keep it real and see each other. I'm super nervous. I don't do good speaking in front of people. <laughs> um, Shula Chardip, I want to ask you, um, speaking of justice, right now the political climate, as you know, in North America is, is incensed, like it's in flames. It's crazy out there. And I'm just feeling like super stressed out about it and I don't really know how to Oh no, yeah, don't be it. Uh, don't be. I think How do we as bhakti practitioners like how do we make our way because I don't want do to a, Yeah, you bhakti. need it sounds like you really need to do a news fast. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like you go on Instagram or that sort of thing and well, Why in the world would a sane person go on Instagram? <laughs> it's like I mean, I mean, I mean, the point is, if you're eating a certain food and it has some ingredients making you sick and you think, but I have to eat that food, why? Why do you have to eat that food? I mean, I know what's going on. I sort of keep up with what's going on. And it's, um, yeah, basically we live in, in a mad and insane asylum right now. The politicians are, um, most of them kind of despicable. And you don't so, want to look like you're apathetic or that you don't care. You do care, but you just maybe don't want to be. However, involved. but here's the point. We have the right way of caring. Why, 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 why is American politics so polemical? Why is it locked into these extremes, opposing extremes? Krishna explains that in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna explains that in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 18. I'm a Gita thumper, by the way. Um, in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 18, text 20 and 21, Krishna explains that when someone is in the mode of goodness and higher consciousness, 
they see the differences of people. They see the differences, but they see the oneness underlying the differences. Ultimately, we're all one despite the differences, differences of race, of sex, of species, of political views. I mean, some people neurologically, they've done studies. You know, the guy at New York University, Jonathan Haidt, very famous scholar of this. Some people are just neurologically wired to be on the left. Some people are neurologically wired to be on the right. They, they, they emphasize different virtues and they neglect other virtues. So they're not gonna solve the problem. Anyone who thinks these politicians are going to make the world better, I mean, that, that itself is crazy. We care about the world and we have knowledge that can make the world better. And so rather than wasting your time, wasting Krishna's time, I mean, you know, you can just, Frankly, five minutes a day, you can know everything that's going on. It's, um, we should emphasize the need for Krishna consciousness because these polemical politicians, you know, their, their love is based on hate. It's like they love this cause because they hate people that don't support it. So love, which is based on hate, like I love all the people who think like me and I hate everyone that doesn't, that's not the solution. History shows today's liberator is tomorrow's tyrant. I mean, there are innumerable examples. So how can these hateful people make the world better? So we should focus on the solution. And yet we have to be more attached. It's the material world. You have to remember where you are. So, any other? Any other questions online? Anyone? Uh, Gandini. Gandini is uh, doing all kinds of programs in Argentina. Yes, Thank you for your mercy. Uh, all is happening. Your blessings and making it happen. Uh, I still have these issues of this uh, uh, material justice, you know, uh, and I understand that ultimately Krishna sees the harm, but you also told me once that the, the, the kings were always very eager to make sure that the justice was done in their kingdom, yes? And so it seems to be that maybe somebody who's not a leader in anything, they don't have to worry in some ways and trust on Krishna's uh, you know, karma, you know, getting the bad person with the person who needs that, and that's it, you know. But if you one is organizing or leading something, how do you make sure there is justice in the sense that the kings were finding justice and then don't say Krishna says, Yeah, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, don't lament for things beyond your control. To the best of my knowledge, uh, I don't really have the power to redo the American political landscape. I mean, last time I checked, there were not many millions of people ready to just do what I said. So um, it's very simple. You know, can we change? I, I think, you know, all we can do is try to give people knowledge and hope they'll become better people. 
No, but I was talking about more like not even America, but in general, you know, you are ruling or you have something to organize or direct and you want to be justice within whatever you're working, even your family. Hierarchies, hierarchies are natural. It is natural for parents to govern their little children, to raise their children. It is natural for teachers to teach their students. So there are natural hierarchies in the world. And it's a question of balance between equality and hierarchy. Because in fact, without proper hierarchy, you can't have equality. Because unless you have enlightened people governing, you will never have equality. Because unenlightened people don't want equality. They want to steal for their friends and just and punish their enemies. How can people who hate half the country bring equality for all, dignity for all, when these, you know, these creepy politicians on both sides, uh, they, um, they hate, you know, they hate or they foster hate of half the country. So the mode of passion, Krishna says in the mode of passion, you see the differences, but you don't see any underlying equality. All you see is the differences. Men and women are different. People in different species are different. Different races are different. You know, left and right politically are different. Everything is just different. And you can't see the oneness. You can't see the oneness. Because to see the oneness, you have to be in higher consciousness. So if we have a bunch of leaders in low consciousness who just, you know, want to burger up every every night, you know, just, you know, see no problem, just killing animals, killing this, killing that. And, you know, just obviously disgusting people that only want their own interest. All they want is their own power. And they couldn't care less what's actually true or not. I mean, what can you expect? So therefore, if there's any hope for this planet, if there's any hope for this country, it will come from a vigorous, dynamic effort by God-conscious people. It's not going to come, the politicians aren't going to save us. We're supposed to be going out and doing this. So, I mean, why go on Instagram, whatever it is, to find the latest idiotic thing that the politicians said? I mean, every, you know, there's the daily stupidity, the daily nonsense, the daily cheating. So if you feel that that's something you really want to, you know, keep very close track of, have fun. I mean, I just look at the headline. You look at the headlines, it takes five or 10 minutes, you know, everything is going on. And plus, you know, the news, they just... Anyway, I won't, I won't go into all these things yet. I mean, you're getting news from biased sources. You know, I, I, I believe that I have Krishna's given me sufficient intelligence and just experience of life that when I read the news, I filter out all the bias, not all, but I filter out, you know, the bias and the sectarianism, and there's a lot to filter. You know, there's, you know, most of the media is very much biased. And, but if you have, you have any intelligence, you just filter it all out and try to take what's left. 
Otherwise, when they want to agitate you, because an agitated reader is a reader that will come back to find out what happened. That's the whole point of the media is to agitate you, to get you disturbed. Because if you're disturbed, you gotta, you gotta come back tomorrow and see what happened. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so uh, if any of you are interested in, in getting a, a Spanish, well, not, I'm not gonna say the same thing, but yeah, I think, it's, I think it's being hosted by, it's being hosted by a devotee who's, I think he lives in Uruguay, but he, he lived for a long time in Peru. So maybe like with the Peruvian, well, here in our in-person event, we're going to have Prasada. Oh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> and, and it's going to be very empirical. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody online, thank you for joining. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Gracias por inviting me. Thank you. Gracias por hacer este programa. Michelin, Haribol, gracias a todos. Ciao, Argentini. Haribol.